0: So here's how we're going to begin with a short exercise. I want you to write an answer to two questions just as briefly as you can for yourself. So the first question is, what is the law of God? And I don't mean like the details like, oh, just the Ten Commandments, like that would be too easy. I want you to ask yourself, what does the law of God do? How do you recognize it at work? Where is it found? Think about that for a minute. Don't worry if it's hard for you. Hopefully by the end of these lectures, it will be easy for you to answer, but it's good for you to find out your own starting place on the topic of the law. All right, and now the second question is, what is the gospel of God? Again, you can't write John 3.16. I want you to write down what does the gospel do? How do you recognize it at work? Where is it found in life, in church, in your experience? I'm going to continue on now. You can keep writing as you go if you like. So, the law and the distinction between law and gospel is one of the cornerstone pieces of Lutheran theology. And you can't understand Luther's doctrine of justification by faith or the sacraments unless you understand the distinction between law and gospel because it's how Luther reads and his his way of working through the entire scripture. So, I'm going to start unfolding that for you in the course of these lectures. And I'm going to start with Luther's writing a brief instruction on what to look for and expect in the Gospels. Now this he wrote in the year 1521. It was the year of his condemnation at the Diet of Worms. He begins in the writing by saying that it is a mistake to speak of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says, it's better to say there is one Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is presented in many and various ways by the writers of the Scripture. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write longer biographies of Jesus, though John is different from the other three, emphasizing Jesus' words more than actions, at least till the end. Paul, who left us only letters, is also an evangelist, according to Luther's definition, even though he gives us almost no biographical details about Jesus. You can say the same of Peter and his letters. Even the book of Acts is gospel for Luther, And that's because gospel simply means good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, who died and was raised and is Lord of all. And this good news is offered to us for our salvation. Now, notice Luther's emphasis here. The main thing about the gospel is that it concerns Jesus and what he has done for us. It is not in the first place about us, though it certainly is for us, It is not about what we do, but what Jesus has already done and continues to do. Luther realized, though, that the people in his time did not approach the news about Jesus in this way. They approached it instead as a new law, superior to the ancient law of Israel, and that had some very bad consequences, but still a law. Luther wanted to correct this misunderstanding, so now I'm going to read to you a quote in which he expresses the proper way to approach New Testament writings about Christ. It is quite a long quote, but it is so perfectly expressed that I could not make it better by shortening it or summarizing it. So here we go. Luther says, You should grasp Christ, his words, works, and sufferings in a twofold manner. First, as an example that is presented to you, which you should follow and imitate. As St. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, Christ suffered for us, thereby leaving us an example. Thus, when you see how he prays, fasts, helps people, and shows them love, so you also should do, both for yourself and for your neighbor. However, this is the smallest part of the gospel, on the basis of which it cannot yet even be called gospel. For on this level, Christ is of no more help to you than some other saint. His life remains his own and does not as yet contribute anything to you. In short, this mode of understanding Christ as an example does not make Christians, but only hypocrites. You must grasp Christ at a much higher level. Even though this higher level has for a long time been the very best, the preaching of it has been something rare. The chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift. "'as a present that God has given you and that is your own. "'This means that when you see or hear of Christ doing or suffering something, "'you do not doubt that Christ himself, with his deeds and suffering, belongs to you. "'On this you may depend as surely as if you had done it yourself, "'indeed as if you were Christ himself.'" See, this is what it means to have a proper grasp of the gospel, that is, of the overwhelming goodness of God, which neither prophet nor apostle nor angel was ever able fully to express and which no heart could adequately fathom or marvel at. This is the great fire of the love of God for us, whereby the heart and conscience become happy, secure, and content." Now, when you have Christ as the foundation and chief blessing of your salvation, then the other part follows, that you take him as your example, giving yourself in service to your neighbor, just as you see that Christ has given himself to you. See, there faith and love move forward. God's commandment is fulfilled, and a person is happy and fearless to do and suffer all things. Therefore, make a note of this that Christ as a gift nourishes your faith and makes you a Christian. But Christ as an example exercises your works. These do not make you a Christian. Actually, they come forth from you because you have already been made a Christian. As widely as a gift differs from an example, so widely does faith differ from works. For faith possesses nothing of its own, only the deeds and life of Christ. Works have something of your own in them, yet they should not belong to you but to your neighbor. So you see that the gospel is really not a book of laws and commandments which requires deeds of us, but a book of divine promises in which God promises, offers, and gives us all his possessions and benefits in Christ. The fact that Christ and the apostles provide much good teaching and explain the law is to be counted a benefit, just like any other work of Christ. For to teach aright is not the least sort of benefit. He simply tells us what we are to do and what to avoid, what will happen to those who do evil and to those who do well. Christ drives and compels no one. Indeed, he teaches so gently that he entices rather than commands. That was the end of the long quote. Now, before I comment on this passage, I'd like you to take a quick look at the notes you've made on law and gospel. Do you need to make any revisions, updates? You can take a moment to correct or alter if necessary, and then I'll continue. All right, so Luther explains that Christ can be received in two ways, as an example and as a gift. Too many people, Luther thought, saw Christ only as an example, They tried by their own powers to imitate Christ and to be holy as he is holy. Luther could see that taking Christ as an example alone would lead to despair. People would only see how far they fell short of his example. Therefore, the more important thing is first to receive Christ as a gift. God simply gives you Jesus Christ, his own son, out of the great fire of his love for you. Yours are Christ's holiness, his righteousness, his life, his salvation, his resurrection. These things are simply given. There is no command or law to be followed in order to receive them. In fact, God even gives you his Holy Spirits, who lives in you and receives Christ for you. God is both the giving and the receiving at work in us. It's only afterwards, only after we begin truly to understand and receive Christ as a gift. Only then can we begin to appreciate Christ as an example. But even in this case, we will not take Christ as an example in order to become holy enough for God to love us. No, we will take Christ as an example because God's love for us moves us to love others in the same way. It's as if God's love flows into us and then keeps on flowing in our love toward our friends, enemies, neighbors, and family. God's love is freely given to us in Christ, but it doesn't want to stop there. It wants to continue to reach out and gather others in. Thus, when Christ teaches the law or offers himself as an example, he does so in order to help us understand what love really looks like. All of Christ's laws exist to foster and support love. So now that hopefully we understand this twofold approach to Christ, first as gift, then as example, we can get closer to the proper distinction between law and gospel. And I'm going to unfold this now with a treatise from 1525 called How Christians Should Regard Moses, which states the distinction very clearly this sermon, how Christians should regard Moses was part of a very long preaching series Luther did on the book of Exodus, partly to try to improve how Christians of his time thought and felt about the Old Testament. So in this sermon, Luther begins with the observation that only twice in history has God delivered a public sermon rather than speaking privately to individuals or small groups. The first public sermon was on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, accompanied by the signs of smoke and fire on the mountaintop. The second public sermon was on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, which for Jews commemorates the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. But in the book of Acts, Pentecost is the day that God sent the Holy Spirit to the people to bring them to faith in Jesus, accompanied by signs of rushing wind, tongues of fire, and many languages. So now Luther is going to compare these two public sermons of God's. He says, Now, the first sermon and doctrine is the law of God. The second is the gospel. These two sermons are not the same. Therefore, we must have a good grasp of the matter in order to know how to differentiate between them. We must know what the law is and what the gospel is. The law commands and requires us to do certain things. The law is thus directed solely to our behavior and consists in making requirements. For God speaks through the law, saying, Do this, avoid that, this is what I expect of you. The gospel, however, does not preach what we are to do or to avoid. It sets up no requirements, but reverses the approach of the law, does the very opposite, and says, This is what God has done for you. He has let his Son be made flesh for you has let him be put to death for your sake. So then there are two kinds of doctrine and two kinds of works, those of God and those of humans. Just as we and God are separated from one another, so also these two doctrines are widely separated from one another. For the gospel teaches exclusively what has been given us by God and not, as in the case of the law, what we are to do and give to God. Once again, take a look at your notes on law and gospel, and see if you need to make any further revisions or additions. So now, to summarize Luther's distinction between law and gospel very simply and briefly, The law is what God commands. The gospel is what God gives. The law has conditions. It must be obeyed. The gospel is given freely. It needs only to be received. Both law and gospel are words of God, and they are both good words. The law is good because through the law, God says how he wishes us to live with him and one another, with love, at peace, without destructive actions like murder, adultery, theft, slander, and coveting. But here's the crucial part. The law cannot save us. It tells us what we should do and what we should not do, but it doesn't actually give us the power to obey it. Think about it. Simply saying the words, Obey God, doesn't automatically make someone obey God. The gospel, however, is what saves us. It gives us Christ. It gives us Christ's own righteousness and makes it ours. Only when we have received Christ's salvation can we begin to obey truly the commands of the law. And the commands of the law make us see clearly how great is our need for salvation in Christ. Now, Luther asks, if Moses gave the the law to Israel, and many laws that appear to be only for Israel, and if, moreover, the law does not save us, why then should we, Christians and Gentiles, continue to read the books of the law in the Old Testament? What do they have to do with us? Luther gives three reasons. The first reason, he suggests, is that Moses actually has a lot of valuable suggestions about our human life together. To be sure, Christians are not required to obey any of the laws of Israel unless they are also universal laws for all people, such as the law against murder. However, each culture and nation has its own ways of organizing human society, and some ways might be better than others. So Luther found that many of the civil and practical laws of Israel were actually better than the laws of Saxony, where he lived. For example, under Saxon law, farmers were required to pay a certain fixed amount of taxes to their rulers every year. If the weather was bad and the crop failed, they still had to pay the same tax. And if they didn't have enough to pay, they went into debt or starved. But in Moses, farmers paid according to a percentage. If they grew little, they gave little, but they still had something left over. This way, Luther observes, nobody is deprived of his livelihood, and the whole community flourishes or suffers together, since everyone is together dependent on the weather and the well-being of the land. Saxons are not required to adopt this law of Moses because they are Christians and Gentiles, not ancient Israelites. But if they find Moses' law to be a useful law, then they can choose to freely adopt it as an improvement on their own. And note now that nearly every developed society, probably every developed society, uses a percentage-based tax system rather than a flat amount required regardless of your income. Okay, the second reason to read Moses, which he means is just shorthand for the whole Old Testament. The second reason to read the Old Testament for Luther is for the promises, this second category. This is a very important point for him. Luther did not think that the Old Testament was a book only of laws and the New Testament only a book of gospel. In fact, the law is found in the New Testament. Think of the Sermon on the Mount or the ends of all of Paul's letters. And the gospel for Luther is certainly found in the Old Testament. Luther firmly believed that the holy people of Israel were justified by faith, the same way that Christians are. Abraham is the most famous example, of course. For Luther, the only difference is that the Israelites looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promise in the Messiah, while Christians in the church look backwards to that fulfillment. But either way, all of God's people live by faith in the promise of God. Luther identifies many such words of promise in the Old Testament, such as Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. The final reason to read Moses or the Old Testament according to Luther is for the example of faith. If the Israelites lived according to the promise, just like we do, then we can learn from them more about how we should live in faith, how to trust in God and love him. So Luther mentions by name, Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and all the rest. He also notes that there are plenty examples of bad faith, like Cain, Ishmael, and Esau. But for Luther, the difference is not between bad Israel and good church, but between faithful Israel and unfaithful Israel. Over the years, Luther's distinction between law and gospel, like any article of theology, has suffered some misunderstandings or distortions. So before leaving this topic, a general overview of law and gospel here, I'm going to take a look at some misunderstandings and try to explore why exactly they have gotten Luther's distinction between law and gospel wrong. Bear in mind that most theological errors are not entirely wrong. If they were entirely wrong, nobody would mistakenly believe them. Theological errors come as a result of seeing only part of the truth instead of the whole truth. Therefore, it's important to recognize the truth that the error was trying to affirm while pointing out the other parts of the truth that the error has missed. This is also a very good principle when you are debating people theologically. Find what is actually true in common and then work from there out around the edges to what's mistaken. So again... Proper distinction between law and gospel is the law is what God commands, the gospel is what God gives. Just want to say I'm always a little nervous at this point of the lecture that you forget that this is wrong, okay? So I'm going to write the wrong stuff on the board now, not the right stuff. So make sure in your own notes you say this is not the distinction between law and gospel. Here we go. I think I have uh, seven of these. So the distinction between law and gospel is not the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament because there is promise of God also in the Old Testament and commandments of God also in the New Testament. Next, the distinction between law and gospel is not the distinction between the earthly and natural on one side and the divine or supernatural on the other side because both law and gospel come from God. However, the law can be known in part by natural means, Paul says as much in Romans chapter 1, but the gospel can only be known through the Holy Spirit. Three, the distinction between law and gospel is not the distinction between the pre-Christian life and the Christian life. Because the law continues to apply even to the Christian life. You don't get out of the law now that you are a Christian who believes the gospel. However, in the Christian life, the law is no longer the mediator of the relationship between God and the sinner. Christ alone is the mediator. But the law still offers instruction on how we are to live with God and one another. I will get into this in much more detail as I go along. Four, the distinction between law and gospel is not the distinction between God's wrath or anger and God's love, because the law is also an expression of God's love. God is wrathful against sin and therefore against sinners because his law is good. The gospel, though, is that God fulfills the law for sinners because of God's love for them. Still, God's wrath towards sin remains in effect. Five, the distinction between law and gospel is not the distinction between what makes me feel good or innocent and what makes me feel bad or guilty, because God's word is not the same as our psychological reactions to it. People can be happy about the gospel because it tells them of God's love for them, but they can also be angry about the gospel because they want to save themselves instead of being dependent on anyone, even God. We certainly see lots of anger towards the gospel in the New Testament stories. People can be frightened by the law because it exposes their sin, but they can also be happy about the law because it is so much better than the false laws that they have been living under all along. Six, the distinction between law and gospel is not the distinction between Israel's way and the church's way, because Israel also lived by God's promises and the church also obeys God's law. However, the specific law given to the people of Israel is not binding on Christians or Gentiles. Only the universal law is binding on all people. The Ten Commandments, for example, are commended to Christians because they are such an excellent presentation of the universal law. Finally, seven, the distinction between law and gospel is not the distinction between something bad and something good, because both words of God are good. So let me say it one more time, because I really want you to get this. The law is what God commands. The gospel is what God gives. Check to see if your answers are at all close to that. If not, throw them out, and we'll start fresh with the rest of these lectures. It sounds simple, actually. Okay, God's law commands. God's gospel gives. But in fact, it takes quite a lot of practice to get good at making the distinction in real life. So we'll work on that more in the next lectures. Okay, so next topic is the gospel. So I'm going to go more specifically and deeply into the gospel now. If you are acquainted with the usual form of Lutheran theology, then you know that we usually say law gospel or first law, then gospel. The idea is that it's only after we've been terrified by the just demands of the law and our failure to keep them that we turn toward Christ and his gospel for our salvation. In which case, you may wonder why now I'm turning first an in-depth study of the gospel instead of starting with the law like a good Lutheran should. There are two reasons. First, the usual order of law gospel is just too restrictive and doesn't apply to every case. In fact, it probably only applies to people who are already so deeply in the Christian Church and so familiar with God's law that they are capable of being frightened by God's law. But in a missional context or a secular context, This usually isn't the case. Besides, there is something a little disturbing about requiring happy people to become terrified by the law, only then to tell them some good news about Jesus to make them happy again. It seems like a false problem to force on others. Which leads to my second and more important point, which is that the law, God's law, cannot be understood apart from the gospel. It is not an independently operating principle. It is not separable from God's love and gift. So if we are going to understand God's law at all, we must first understand God's gospel. So let's get there by means of a word that is close in meaning to gospel, grace. I'd like you again to pause and write down a definition of grace. It's okay with me if you look at what you wrote about gospel to get some ideas, but this time add a little more detail. What is it that grace actually gives? Okay, now that you have some idea in your mind of what grace is, I have to admit to you, I'm always a little nervous using the word grace in English, and in church settings I usually find myself in. I don't think most people actually understand what the word means, such that grace ends up being somehow divorced from and maybe even opposed to the gospel. However, this is not a new situation in the history of the church. In fact, it was one of the major battles that Luther fought. Let's take a moment to see what is at stake in using the term grace correctly as it played out in the 16th century. So, of all things, why did justification become the major focus of Luther's passionate interest? Even today, it's as difficult a word to get right as grace Widely misunderstood, and certainly nowhere near as possible as salvation, or incarnational, or sacramental. Well, the reason for his obsession with justification is that Martin Luther read an earlier medieval theologian named Gabriel Beale. Beale's writings terrified Luther until Luther finally understood St. Paul. And then Beale just made Luther mad. Here's the problem. Beal knew all about grace. He talked a lot about grace. He even made a a distinction between the law on the one hand and grace or gospel on the other. But in Beal's mind the difference between the two played out very differently. Beal said the law is God's good and divine commandment. We human beings are obliged to obey it, and when we fail we have sinned and deserve punishment. So far, so good. That's pretty universal in church teaching and even in Luther's thought. But then, what did Beale say of grace? He said, The truth is, violating God's law is so terrible, and God's warning against it is so clear, that we really have no excuse. We deserve punishment, even eternal punishment in hell. God would be perfectly fair to do that. But we have a gracious and loving God, He'd prefer not to send us to hell. So in response to our situation of sin, God has given us a second chance. He has sent his only son to die and rise for us again. He has canceled the debt of our old sins. He has asked us to believe in this work on our behalf. All God asks us now is to do all we can by our own powers to obey the law, and God will graciously supply where we fall short. You do your best. God does the rest. Isn't that so much better than an eternity in hell? Isn't that gracious? Isn't that good news? It's not good news. Take a moment now to write down a quick explanation of why this is not good news. Now, maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, Professor. This is good news, what Beale has said. In fact, it's a great deal. And you're right. It is a great deal, but it's not grace. Let's hear Luther's response to Beale. This is the first problem from a human point of view. What is your best? What is your all? And how do you know you've done everything you can? How do you know that you haven't actually feared hell quite enough? And therefore you've cut yourself a few breaks here and there, making weak excuses, defending your sins as understandable under the circumstances. And for that reason, not as bad as your neighbor's sins. This whole spiritual approach will lead to either pride or despair. Either you will despair when you realize that you can never know, much less do your best and your all for God. Or worse, you will think you have done your best and your all for God, in which case God simply owes you salvation. You see, in this system, God is no longer gracious. It is a legal contract. You keep up your side. God keeps up his side, and you meet his equals, each paying out what the other owes. In fact, you don't even need to meet God face to face for this. It's a deal you can manage without any relationship to God at all. Needless to say, if we and God are partners, let's say even unequal partners, then God is not really God, and we almost are. For Luther, this is the center of human sin not wanting God to be God, but wanting myself to be God in God's place. This version of grace, in quotes, actually cheapens both the law and the gospel. So quite the contrary to this cheapened version of Christianity, God's commands and God's gifts both are absolute, total, and entirely at God's free disposal. God demands the total keeping of his law, not just our best efforts. As Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew five forty-eight. And also, God gives the totality of his righteousness to you through the death and resurrection of his son. As St. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Philippians 3.9 God does not require us to climb up to heaven to find him, whether in obedience or in faith. And God doesn't meet us halfway. God comes all the way down to us, commanding all and giving all. As St. Augustine's famous prayer puts it, give what you command and command what you will. I think Luther would agree, but reverse the order of the clauses. Command what you will, and give what you command. So, let me pose the question again. What exactly is the gift that God graciously gives to us? The gospel is not the gift of the law, though the law is also a gift, a different kind of gift, which I'll get to in the next lecture. The gospel is not the gift of the ability to keep the law. The gospel is not the gift of religious experience or powerful, as wonderful as those might be. The gift is not even God deciding to save us now because God knows that eventually we will be good and holy and therefore then deserve our salvation. That would be more like a venture capitalist's investment and not much like grace at all. The gospel is that God gives to his enemies, to sinners, to the dead, while they are still his enemies and sinners and dead, salvation through his own Son and Spirit. Not because the enemies, the sinners and the dead, deserve it, but precisely because they do not deserve it. God's love is not a bargain or a booster, but precisely it is the love for the unlovable, the righteousness for the unrighteousness, The life for the dead that Christ gives them. Furthermore, God always gives first. Only after God gives and we receive his gift, only then can we start to act in response. This is true in creation. God had to create us out of nothing before we could breathe, walk, or speak. It is equally true, even more true, in justification. Faith is the receiving of what God gives. It is the creation of a new person out of nothing. That is why faith is what makes us right with God, or to use the technical language, faith is what justifies us in the eyes of God. It is not and never can be our own works or efforts that cause God to accept us. Rather, God first accepts us through the death and resurrection of his son. And God gives us faith, through the Holy Spirit. Only then, in response to God's work of salvation on our behalf, can we even begin to live and act in holy and righteous ways. So if you need now a moment to edit your definition of grace, please do so. Now, often we find in theology that it's easy to grasp the general concept, but hard to repeat it or see how it works itself out in detail. So now I'm going to work through some test cases to try to get at a better picture of what exactly the gospel of God is, and I'm going to begin with Luther's commentary on the Apostles' Creed in the Large Catechism. Personally, I would say, especially for those of you who are going to be pastors, reread the Large Catechism at least once a year, and more often if possible. It's so immensely rich, there's so much packed in there, it will keep speaking to you again year after year and put you back on track when you... When you uh, go off the rails a bit. Now compared to the section on the Ten Commandments, which begin the large catechism, the section on the Creed is quite short, only about half as long, but it is exceedingly rich. Luther made an innovation in his discussion of it. Previously, the Creed had been divided into 12 articles, with the idea that each of the 12 apostles had contributed one sentence apiece. But Luther recognized that the true structure of the creed is Trinitarian, confessing faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there is your first clue. Gospel and grace always refer primarily to God the Holy Trinity rather than to us. So the first article deals with God the Father, who is creator of heaven and earth. Luther had asked back in his discussion of the first commandments what exactly a God is. Now he tells us, Who exactly God is? All things we are to expect from God according to the first commandments, body, life, food, and drink, we now know to come from the true God who created all these things. And God not only created them, he sustains them day by day and gives them to all who are in need. None of us creatures lives of ourselves or by ourselves. We need each other and everything on earth, even the sun and moon above the earth. They are not ours to own, only ours to receive with thanksgiving and to treat with proper respect. Just as we did nothing to deserve our salvation, but receive it only as a gift from Jesus Christ, so we did nothing to deserve our creation, but receive it only as a gift from God the Father. Now that brings us to the second article about God the Son. For Luther, it is, of course, wonderful that God has given us ourselves and all that we have. But even more wonderful is the fact that God has given us himself. This is the supreme and greatest treasure. And nowhere is God's self-giving more dramatic or complete as in the giving of his son, even to death and the cross, in order to win us back to him. As fallen creatures, we have struggled under many other lords and idols who sit in our hearts. But in Jesus, we are offered a new Lord, a better one, a gracious and merciful one. This is the basic good news of the second article. Jesus Christ has become my Lord. Is that enough? Not quite. There is yet a third article of the Creed about the Holy Spirit. According to Loser, Jesus' death and resurrection wouldn't do us any good if we didn't know about him and trust in him, for faith is the only thing that can dethrone the idols from our hearts. And that is why we need the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings the good news to us and kindles our hearts to believe in it. God is so gracious that he provides not only the giving of our salvation, but the receiving of it as well. As Luther puts it in the small catechism, I believe that by my own understanding or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But instead, the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel. Isn't it a strange thing to confess belief and unbelief? But Luther so absolutely believes in the lordship of God above all things that even faith is God's work in us, the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Yet at the same time, Luther argues that very strongly that the Holy Spirit does not work secretly or invisibly, but by definite means. The Spirit works through the communion of saints, which is the fellowship of the church. The Spirit works through the word and the sacraments, which offer the forgiveness of sins and knowledge of God. And after death, the Spirit will finish the work of making us holy by granting us resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting. Luther summarizes the message of all three articles of the creed by saying, here in the creed you have the entire essence, will, and work of God exquisitely depicted in very brief but rich words. For in all three articles, God himself has revealed and opened to us the most profound depths of his fatherly heart and his pure, unutterable love. We could never come to recognize the Father's favor and grace were it not for the Lord Christ, who is a mirror of the Father's heart. But neither could we know anything of Christ had it not been revealed by the Holy Spirit. We need the entire Holy Trinity, for one person of the Trinity reveals the next, and all three persons together are given to us one God for our salvation. So then, what is grace? Grace is the Holy Trinity's gift of himself to sinful creatures. So now, in light of the Creed, let's make a further distinction. The main distinction I'm working on in these lectures is is the distinction between law and gospel. But we can also see a kind of distinction within the gospel or in the grace of God. I'm going to call one the expansive sense of the gospel and the other the restrictive sense of the gospel. So, the expansive sense of the gospel includes the whole range of God's unconditional gifts to those other than himself. They are all spoken of in the creed. First is the free and undeserved gift of creation, next, the free and undeserved gift of redemption then the beginning of new life and faith through the outpouring of the holy spirit and ultimately the consummation of the new creation in the life to come all of these are gospel or grace because they are god's own free generous gifts given because god is loving and not for any other reason the restrictive sense of the gospel is one specific part of this expansive sense It is the act of the redemption of sinners by the Son of God through his incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection. Christ died for us while we were still sinners who willfully destroyed the gifts of creation and rejected the Creator. And yet, the Divine Son chose to redeem rather than condemn these sinners at huge cost to himself in the form of death on the cross. The restrictive sense of the gospel is somehow more startling and unexpected than the expansive sense of the gospel. And for this reason, it is also in some ways more the gospel than the expansive sense. And that's certainly the main focus of the New Testament sense of the term gospel. But it is important for us to see how the restrictive sense is set within the expansive sense and that both of them are about the free and generous giving of God to what is not God, to what is in fact nothing at all, nothing without him. Okay, now maybe some of you are thinking now, this is all very nice about Luther, 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 but can you prove it to me more from the Bible? And maybe from some book other than Romans and Galatians? Good questions to ask a Lutheran theologian. And yes, I can. I'm going to take a look at the Gospel of John. After all, it contains the famous verse of John 3.16, so it must know something about the gospel. If you read through the gospel of John, attentive to this definition of the gospel, you will be able to see that John's main theme, running all the way through, is the drama about what God gives and whether we do or do not receive this gift. Already in the prologue, we have the observation, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Throughout the story, Jesus bears witness to himself, and others bear witness to him, but again and again, people do not receive our testimony. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Yet even the receiving of this son is a gift. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So, for example, Jesus offers the Samaritan woman at the well living water. She receives life-giving faith. The divine habit of giving, we find, is an extension of God's Trinitarian being. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Yet even so, the Spirit is one whom the world cannot receive. Those who learn of the bread from heaven and ask for it eventually find that they do not want to receive it after all. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What God gives does not inspire joy in everyone, and some refuse to accept it. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Even Peter proves to be reluctant to receive God's gift, declaring, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answers, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus' gifts are not worldly gifts with strings of fair play attached. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. The whole issue is summed up in Jesus' final discourse to his disciples when he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And John's closing lines suggest, in a very hopeful antidote to the severity of much of this book, the sheer infinity of God's gifts when he writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. God's gospel can never be exhausted. Now take a moment to think of some other passages of scripture that might come to mind regarding faith and the giving and receiving of it. Now for me, the ones that come to mind are Joshua 24, choose this day whom you shall serve, and Mark 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now you may have heard these only out of context and presented as commands. So believe or else, that's a threat, or believe and get a big prize. That's a lure. Now, try to reframe these passages in the larger context of what we have learned today about the gospel. How can you choose whom you will serve, especially when the whole human condition is serving false idols? How will you believe when the core of human sin is unbelief? What will change the situation for you? It is not your effort. It is not your obedience. It is not you at all. It is the mercy of God the Father in giving His Son and His Spirit. When you hear these kind of typical verses, especially maybe in a prayer or worship context, that are saying, you know, pushing you, believe, 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 try to reframe them. Don't let them become commandments. They're not meant to be commandments. They're not meant to function that way. The function of this language is to actually be giving you the gift of faith through the Holy Spirit. Not threatening you or luring you with some kind of big prize when a good deal exchanged with God. All right, I'm going to conclude now this lecture on the gospel with a provocative question. I've emphasized throughout that the gospel gives freely and unconditionally. The gospel is a promise based only on the promiser, that's God, not on the recipient, that's us. So is it possible to speak of the gospel as also commanding? To answer this question, let me lay out some scripture passages before you. Come to me, all who labor are heavy and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's Matthew 11. Here's another one from Luke 11. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? From Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. From John 20, And when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. From Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And a final quote from Acts 2, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now in each of these six passages I've read, there are unmistakable commands, both in grammar and in content. Come, take my yoke, learn from me. Take and eat, drink of it, all of you. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing and teaching, repent and be baptized, receive and therefore forgive, ask, seek, knock. Every one of these is clearly a command. Yet even the most rigorous of law gospel distinguishing Lutherans would not characterize them as oppressive burdens to be overcome or released from by the gospel. Rather, each of these gospel commands has even more gospel attached to it. Coming to Christ brings rest and an easy burden. Eating and drinking bring the forgiveness of our sins, as does being baptized. Making disciples, baptizing, and teaching is matched with the presence of Christ for all time. Receiving brings the Holy Spirit and even more forgiveness of sins to be offered to others. Asking, seeking, and knocking are rewarded with what is asked for and what is sought and opens the door to the Holy Spirit. All of these things are God's gifts to us what appear to be commands of God are actually the spirit doing the work of creating faith in our human hearts. The gospel does command. It commands more gospel. So you see, this is the extraordinary power of God to turn even commands to the service of his gospel. We will see in more detail how this applies in the next lecture on the law of God.